Good morning. It's a blessing to be here once more, and it's always a joy to stand before you to preach God's Word, announce His Gospel. What a honor it is to be an ambassador for Christ, for a dear congregation. Let us now open our Bibles um, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 39, as you see in your order of worship. My family is not here with me today, and they surely and sorely miss you. They would love to be here. We are always so warmly received here, all of us. Uh, our son, Silas, he was not feeling well last night, nothing serious, but he woke up with a little bit of a fever, so on. I thought it would be wise to let him rest and recover. So Mark 15, 33 through 39 is our word for this morning. <clears throat> I'm reading from the New King James. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, it is because of this man, who is the Son of God, that we can now cry out to you as our Father. Lord, we go unto your throne of grace now with the boldness, gratitude, yet humility, servants, creatures, Wounded sinners immune of the balm of your spirit. That healed the fatal wound of sin in the hearts of believers. It may heal, even today, in the hearts of unbelievers. We pray for your comfort, for your care, for your instruction, for your encouragement, for your rebuke to be present in our midst. The Lord, indeed, as it was said, the grass withers and the coral trees, but the words of your mouth stand forever. So I plead with you, Lord. Be with all of us and be with me. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasant in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
certain people are uniquely gifted for specific jobs and tasks, aren't they? It is common and a wise advice for young people who are trying to figure what they're going to do for the rest of their lives in terms of a specific career or calling, to use a, a more theological term. It is given to them the advice that they should look for the gifts that the Lord has bestowed upon them in order for them to realize hints of what they could be pursuing with their lives. After all, these are these gifts are providential markers, if you will. They showed us clearly that God made each and every one of us for a specific purpose. And for that purpose, He equips us in His providence. I, for one, still remember when uh, my class of high school, when I was graduating from high school, celebrated uh, we, my closest friends, we celebrated together in our last month of school. Uh, we tried in that month to make sure that we would do everything that we used to do together as years went by in our school time together. I was very excited a certain day that it was basketball day. I was ready to put on a show. Uh, not, of course, a, a, a show like I saw Pastor Gilbert with his daughter dancing. That, that, that was something else. But the basketball court was wet because the past day, it rained the whole day. So they had to, we had to choose something else. They ended up choosing paintball. Some of you may know where this is going. Everyone soon realized that I was the easy target. <laughs> and from that day onwards, I said... No more of this. Still, natural gifts are not the only thing that we need to pay attention to. They're not the only important thing to accomplish certain tasks in life. Preparation is often crucial to, the, to that end. And as we think about tomorrow, especially those who fought for this nation, they spent time preparing to have success in their mission, didn't they? But what about conquering our most fundamental liberty and crucial freedom? Freedom from sin's bondage. Who is suited to conquer the peace that we need the most? Peace with God Himself, our, our own Creator. After all, while living in God's private property, we all have trespassed and transgressed His laws, haven't we? From the youngest to the oldest among us this morning. All humanity struggles with that inability to find rest in anything other than the gospel, in anyone else than God. And we all try so hard, don't we? From ancient times, philosophers have tried to find the sure way for everlasting happiness and peace. But, children, let me address you now. Imagine that someone murder one of your parents. And then when he goes to court, he looks at the judge and says, I am so sorry I did this. And then the judge, because he said, I'm so sorry, says, oh, you're sorry. Okay, go away. Go have your life. How would you feel? That's not right, is it? Judges don't do that. 
the criminal needs to pay for what he has done. We all instinctively know and desire justice, especially when injustice is committed against us. In a sense, I always say the best argument against those people who seem to think that the concept of justice and truth is a mere cultural construct is stealing their wallet. They will soon realize that there is objectivity in the world. There are ultimate, ultimate truths. There is an ethical standard. They just don't know what is, or better saying, who is that standard. See, we, we live in a time and in a particular culture here in the South, don't we, of nominal Christianity. Where people talk unashamedly about a God of their own making, a God that is only love and a distorted love there I say. God is also justice, as we read in our Bibles. He's all of that. Love, justice, mercy, compassion, wrath. And each and every one of His attributes qualify all of them, including love. This is why we say that the cross is the most revealing of God's actions, because all of His attributes harmonize in order to work for His major glory in the redemption of undeserving sinners. So let me tell you, all of that to say that all of you sinners, cosmic criminals in a sense, all of us, cannot leave the courtroom of justice just by saying, I'm sorry. Neither will you be able to pay the price that you owe to the creator and owner of this whole world. This is why hell is eternal. So who can give us any hope? Of peace with this God. His only begotten Son is the man. And it is Him whom Mark presents in, the, in His Gospel account. Mark began His Gospel introducing this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the first verse of Mark. Being God and man, Jesus Christ is uniquely equipped to pay the debt you owe having the nature of God join inseparably with your nature. Brethren, His sacrifice had a worth that no mere human sacrifice would. This is why we say that His work is sufficient. But still, even this God-man had to prepare Himself through his ministry. We read and use the language of Hebrews, he had to perfect himself through his sufferings unto obedience, Hebrews 5.8. Thus he, we see him in the gospel here, being baptized, tempted, being betrayed and crucified. All the while teaching sinners that he was the way of salvation, that he came to give his life as a ransom, as a rescue for sinners, Mark 10.45. Therefore, he is perfectly suited and prepared for the task before him, the task of salvation of penitent sinners. And in this text, if you will, our sermon in a sentence is that on the cross, Jesus suffered divine wrath, satisfied divine justice, and revealed his divine identity. On the cross, Jesus suffered divine wrath, satisfied divine justice and revealed His divine identity. Let us see these three things 
as you have in your order of worship. Divine wrath first, verses 33 through 36 in our text. And here what we have is a culmination of the theme that goes throughout the Gospel of Mark of Christ's rejection. You see, at this point, he had been abandoned by everyone. He had been despised by the established church of the time, by his own people who did not know him, and even his innermost circle of disciples, as it was drawn to our attention, were scattered. However, as we will see in this climactic moment of his death, a more terrifying abandonment happened as he suffered divine wrath. Let us unpack this sobering scene. Look with me, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The text says, in our uh, standards here, that there was darkness from noon up until 3 p.m. in the whole land of Judea. And I must tell you, that could not be a natural event. Simply because, if you remember, these events took place during Passover time. And during Passover time, the earth is between the moon and the sun. Which means that it is a physical impossibility for us to have a solar eclipse. For that to happen, the moon should block the sun. Thus, casting a shadow upon the earth. So what we have here, something unusual, something supernatural. So in light of that, we need to understand what is the theological import because every supernatural event, especially in the Gospels, but throughout the Scriptures, they are signs to a greater reality. And this is also the case here. So we shall begin by pondering, what does the Bible have to say about darkness? Uh, And first, I want you to remember Exodus 10 and the ninth plague. And there is even a striking parallel here between that event and this one. There we had darkness for three days and here for three hours. And then that moment was the culminating moment when the Lord would culminate in the Passover, the sacrifice of the Lamb, so that by that He would deliver His people. And He did that by judging the Egyptians, didn't He? On the other hand, remember also number six, the famous passage of the Aaronic blessing. From there, we can easily grasp that the face of the Lord in Scripture is intimately connected with the idea of light. Let me read for you verse 24 through 26 of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. What do we have here? Here we see the Lord, in a sense, turning His face away from His Son, removing His shiny countenance from Him, and singling Him out as an object of judgment, as a recipient of wrath. He had never done such a thing throughout eternity. As God the Son was one with Him, Jesus never had experienced that and neither was particularly anxious to undergo such a thing. You remember Gethsemane where Jesus, knowing very well what was waiting him, earnestly prayed, Father, if you are willing, let this cup of wrath pass away from me. But being one with his Father, as God the Son in the flesh now, 
he knew his father's will and he was one with his father. So he said, let your will be done. And having prayed for glory to result from that cursed cross, as we read, for instance, in passages like John 17, and, for the, and, and pay attention to the joy that was set before him, he endured that cursed death of the cross, cross despising the shame. Jesus Christ then, brethren, is being judged here right in front of our eyes in our text. God the Son, the bread who came down from heaven, through whom all things were made, who sustains all things through the word of His power, hanging as a cursed man on a piece of wood that He Himself has created and placed there by His rebellious creation. Receiving the punishment of the sinful people God, whom he amiably invited to enter into a covenant with him, but still kept going astray. Thus the prophets recognized the day of accounts, known as the day of the Lord. A day in which that sinful people would experience, God's people would experience the fullest measure of his wrath. A day known as the day of the Lord, about which Amos speaks so clearly here. And the connection is so clear that I barely needs explanation. Amos 8, 9. See here. It will come about in that day, day of the Lord, declares Yahweh, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark. In broad daylight. Jesus is undergoing the wrath reserved for you, Christian. Now what else is described in the Bible as utter darkness? Matthew 8, 22. Matthew 8 and Matthew 22. You see Jesus himself describing hell with these terms. On that cross, dear congregation, Christ suffered hellish Agonies and sufferings, which is what every sin deserves. Notice that hell is not marked by the absence of God, as some may think, but by the absence of His favorable presence. He's not present as a Savior, but as a judge. God is present in hell. Satan is not king in hell, as hell was created for him to. How is the place that God has prepared for His enemies? Those who dare to threaten His authority and those who despise His favor, which avails to the same thing. Hell is not a place in which people think, as they say out loud in social media or whatever platform they have, that they will finally be able to do all the things that are fun and that they do here on earth. No. Hell is a place where the weight of the omnipotent God's wrath will be poured out on sinners to the last drop. Before our eyes, what we have here is He who knew no sin being made sin, receiving the deserved punishment of sin so that you 
believing in him, being united to him, now may become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So the darkness here is evidence that Christ was suffering divine wrath. But not only that, we see this even through the very words of dereliction from his mouth. Verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated as Aramaic. And this is actually a literary source that Mark uses to God's attention to the scene. He's kind of zooming in a camera if this was a movie. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, from his cry, we notice that his agonies that he received in his body, although horrendous, are pale compared to the agonies that he received upon his soul as he experienced the face of his father turning away from him. We have here an invitation to behold the scene attentively by bringing that direct speech in Aramaic as I pointed out. And there is a textual detail here that is important for you to note. He does not address God as Father, but as my God, because there He is the suffering servant. And the significance of this detail is to indicate to us that there is no breaking within the Godhead, within the Trinity, by occasion of the crucifixion of God, the God-man. It is not as if for a moment God the Son ceased to be God. No. He is still one with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, the man, experienced real abandonment. And as our representative, he endured it to the last drop. And the only reason he could endure it in such a measure that you pay for your eternal debt is because he was the God-man. So his divine nature would not only sustain his humanity from sinking down completely, but would also communicate an efficacy to his sorrows. That alone can explain how could one man conquer such a numerous seed as it should be described as the stars in heaven. To our father in faith, Abraham. Mystery of mysteries. Wonder of wonders. What a God. What a Savior. What a plan. So we see Christ suffering divine wrath as indicated by the darkness, by the despair of dereliction, and finally in him enduring even the debauchery of his own people. The bystanders, verses 35 and 36, we see that. When he says, Eli, Eli, there was a tradition among the Jews that Elijah would come to rescue a righteous person in deep distress. Then the bystanders, by knowing that, they indicate to us, we cannot be conclusive. Foreigners could know that too. They could learn. They're human beings, rational. But it indicates to us that these were Israelites passing by. For they knew the tradition. So they're saying, oh, he's calling Elijah. But Mark had already showed us that the Elijah that would come had already come. And they did with him as they pleased. They beheaded him. And that was John the Baptist. We have here Christ being mocked even by his own people. And there is something I need to address considering all this. It was your sin. It wasn't obvious enough at this point. It was your sin who put him in the cross. 
Even that white lie that seems so non-dangerous, so safe to say, disobedience to your parents, unbelief, pride, envy, gossip, love for money. You may be questioning this in your head and saying, but I have not asked for this. After all, I do not want to confess Jesus as my Savior. I'm just here because it's the right thing to do, I guess. Some good folks around me. My parents forced me. I am not a Christian. I'm not a bigot. And I want to be at peace with the culture around me. I'm not in a crusade. I also don't want to stop taking legitimate advantages in my business or in my workplace. This world is for the smartest, after all. Let me tell you something. Don't worry. For if you do not repent of your sins and confess this Jesus as your Lord, He was not in doing this for you. Let me tell you something else. If He was not suffering for you, guess who will suffer one rest one day? You. But today, there's still hope for you. If you repent and believe in Him, this is a clear sign that your name, as we sang, was in His hands as He endured that cursed death. But for you, fellow Christians, what should be your response to this sacrifice? Should we take sin lightly? By any means. Therefore, let us stop playing with sin. Stop thinking that you can balance yourself in a line between godliness and immorality. How can you not grieve upon your sins? We grieve and complain about all kinds of stuff in this life. But will we not struggle with our sins and wrestle with it? Parents now, I address your children, let me address you now. Imagine if someone stabbed your child with a knife in front of your eyes. Would you frame that and put it in the living room so that everybody could see? No. You would despise that and tremble at the very sight of that thing. Why would you play around with the very thing that puts your professed Savior on a piece of wood to be a mockery, spit upon, and experience such a weighty cup of wrath? Don't you love Him? Unrepented and willful sin will put you in the position of those bystanders. You are mocking the cross of Christ. Flee from this stance. It is time today to do so. He will not despise your heart's contrition if it's genuine. We have seen now that Christ has suffered divine wrath. We have seen that in the darkness in his dereliction, and in the debauchery of the bystanders. Let us see with me then. Second, divine justice, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Cried out with a loud voice. That is redundant. 
clearly emphatic and even repeat it a second time in case you didn't hear it. So when there is emphasis, there is a desire for you to pay particular attention to that which is being emphasized. All people being crucified don't usually are very loud, for they die customarily of suffocation. The mark shows that Christ was in full control of his capacities. And that reminds me of John 10, where he says that nobody takes my life away from me, but I give my life. I have authority to give my life. He was the one offering. Nobody was taking by force. Even in his death, he made it very clear. And from the harmony of Luke and John, we, we know what he said. It is finished. Thus, Lord, in your hands now I commit my spirit. Then as soon as he shouts that with a loud cry, again, if this was a movie, what Mark is doing is he the scene just changed bang and the camera goes to another different place and shows the scene of the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom, teaching us the theological significance of the death of Christ. You see, the dramatic and culminating effect of the sacrificial high priestly death of Christ as the veil of the temple was torn. And that was a thick veil, my friends. Some scholars even contend here that if you would put two bowls to run in opposite directions, that wouldn't be strength enough to tear that thing apart. And, and being torn from top to bottom is another indication that the Father is giving us. This is me saying, I receive this offering. My justice is satisfied. Therefore, the way that was hindered by the thick veil, the way of access to the holiest place, in a, in a sense, the way back to the garden is now open for fellowship with me in the most intimate way. Thus Jesus reveals the most intimate name ever of the Godhead. The name singular of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are called the friends of the living God. I shall no longer call you servants. In Christ's death, my friends, the way was made open. The dream of a nation of priests was brought about. And you see that in Exodus 19. And Peter talking about that in 1 Peter 2. Moses' prayer that the people would be a people full of the Spirit. Numbers 11 was answered. The Spirit, therefore, brings us, not only Christ to us, but us to Christ as we are in the heavenly places with Him right now spiritually as we worship Him in spirit and in truth that is in reality. Not only through symbols, but in the substance of the Son He gives us access to His Father. Do you believe this? If you do, come worship Him with even more fervor. Come to the prayer meetings. Pray fervently, daily, and persistently in private. Why wouldn't you use that access? We think that a man that spends his life uh, gathering resources and never using them, never enjoying them, and then dies, that was a foolish move on his part. And we have such a greater treasure in the access that we have to the triune God. And, and, and what does that say of us if we don't use it? 
I'll let that answer for you. It's not hard. What's more? Do not ever think that God will let any sin pass unnoticed. He won't. See, uh, upon seeing a son, a relative, a friend, a loved one, a, a human judge can, okay, I'm going to try to let some of your offenses slip through my fingers so that you don't have the full penalty. We can see that happen, can't we? But we are seeing, meditating, and by the grace of God, applying to our hearts the fact that the Father did not spare His only begotten Son, whom He loved from eternity past. He did not let any of His people's sin to pass. He needed to drink the full cup of divine wrath in order to satisfy divine justice. If God will let any sin go unpunished, you'd have to deny who He is, and that is that He is just. And this is one thing that God cannot do. He cannot deny who He is. Every sin must be paid for. Who paid will pay for yours. This is the warning. But there is also comfort. From God's justice. Because he's just, there is zero risk of double jeopardy with him. Therefore, if you are in Christ, your sins are paid for. And because God is just, he cannot charge you twice. You see, this is why we read often and we often let this information pass by. And slip the comfort that comes from a very simple and familiar verse like this. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the cross, Christ suffered wrath in the darkness, dereliction, and debauchery. He also satisfied divine justice. In, in his offering himself an acceptable sacrifice as God-man, evidenced by the rending of the veil, thus giving his people access to God. Now see with me finally, and much more briefly, third, he revealed the divine identity. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last and said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now Mark brings the camera back from the temple to our main scene. And he zooms in the camera so close that you can see the words that comes out of the mouth of one of the characters of that particular scene. And a confession comes out of his mouth. A confession that is without a doubt the climax of this gospel. Truly, this man was the Son of God. A centurion was a commander of at least 100 people in the Roman army. A tough man who would not be easily impressed. Who certainly had witnessed hundreds of crucifixions. What does Mark say that led this man to conclude such a thing? He saw 
the manner in which Christ died. Remember, he cried out with a loud voice. And that was very unusual. And there I say, supernatural. Oh, some have hesitated, hesitated to give much to that confession. I was one of them. You'd say, just, okay, he's just saying something. He's not actually meaning much. Many reasons made me change my mind as I first exegeted this passage. First, this is the climax of the gospel, as I said, as this is the first time that human lips confess, before only the demons had said this, that Jesus was the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. Second, the relevance of this declaration for the original audience, like that of Rome, likely Mark sent this Gospel to Rome. Caesar would be the one who would bear that title of the Son of God, that the centurion now recognized Jesus to be. And that is not a minor thing, my friend. Maybe we're, we are so distant from that reality that we don't appreciate that as we should. But especially when you see how many times in your life as a Christian you were afraid to confess Jesus just because people would frown upon you. Do you think a leader of the Roman army on that day and age, well, no human rights association, would get only a frown for uttering such a statement, giving to a, a, a man suffering a death, a cursed death of the cross, the title that should be his Caesar's? That was sheer treason. Third, the context of Psalm 22, the Christ quotes. As he's dying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. And we need to remember that uh, the meaning of particular verses in the Bible are drawn from their surrounding contexts, as words have meaning based upon their context. So when we have a quote from an Old Testament in the New Testament, you need to remember that the meaning of that verse is determined by and restricted by his context, that verse's context. In that case, Psalm 22, which ends with what? The nations being converted to Yahweh. See, particularly verse 27 of Psalm 22. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And even prophesied about you here in Douglasville today. Verse 31, they will come and declare His, the servant's righteousness, to a people who will be born. That He has done this. So in this Roman centurion's confession, we have a sample of the apostolic import that Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14, that Christ redeemed people from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, so that the blessing of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessing you, Abraham, says the Lord, might come upon the Gentiles. God's plan always had the nations in view since the call of Abram. Indeed, his name went from Abram to Abraham because he would be a father in faith to many nations. And we are his sons and daughters, aren't we? Paul also teaches that in Galatians, as we are sons of Abraham. We partake of his faith. And here we have this extraordinary confession from an unlikely source, the centurion. The foolishness of the cross.
cross is indeed wiser than any human scheme, brothers and sisters. And you know what that means for your life? That means hope for your lost spouse, son, daughter, friend, relative, loved one, neighbor. So keep on praying, keep on witnessing for he who suffered divine wrath in the darkness is himself light. He who satisfied divine justice is himself the justifier and he is also the son of God and God the son. He is more than able to make the light of the gospel shine upon the darkest of hearts. You see. And for you, Christian, as you struggle with these kind of things of unbelieving loved ones, um, and even other disappointments in life, how can you doubt God's love for you, regardless of what you go through after what we have seen this morning? He gave His only Son to die for you. Dear unbeliever, how can you not come to the Savior? What are you waiting for? Who in this world has ever shown you, has ever given greater affection to His people than this King? If you're not united to Him, you are the one who you endure hell. God is just and sin must be paid for. And you know that conscience in your mind that you're trying to silence and quench for weeks? Maybe years now, trying to take Christianity as a mere, I don't know, hobby or something. That inner voice telling you that what this preacher is saying is true. It might be very quiet and low now, but I assure you, in the name of Christ, that in hell it's going to become very loud. And like a locust, as the prophet Isaiah said, it will consume your peace. As you look back and saw yourself spitting at the cross of the Savior. And since you may spend eternity there if you're not in Christ, you might as well remember even this very sermon this morning and mourn over it. May that not be you. Therefore, in the name of Christ and as His ambassador. I plead with you, turn to Him now. If today you listen His voice, do not harden your hearts. As I said in the beginning, there is such a thing as the right person to do a job, and Christ is the only one who can do the work of your salvation. He's a suitable and sufficient Savior. He's suitable for He's a man like us. He is sufficient for He's God unlike us. Therefore, trust in Him. You will never be perfect. And some people seem to wait for being able to put off certain scandalous sins so that they can now be a Christian. That's not right. You know, you don't have to do anything to become a Christian, but believing and surrendering yourself at the foot of the cross and coming to Him now, there is nothing you can do, and never will be. Christ has done everything that is needed, so come to Him. That is the only thing you need to do. And if you come with a genuine and penitent heart, I can guarantee you that He is the one 
who is beginning the work in you that will be brought to completion and He will conform you to His image, to His Spirit. And that's my hope and my prayer for you this morning. Come to Him today. If you're a Christian, come to Him once more, to the foot of the cross, and thank the Lord for such a great Savior we have. In Jesus' name, now, let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, thank you for the wonders of your gospel. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. You are the truth. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. Heavenly Father, don't let us to fall captive into the lies of Satan. Give us comfort. Give us a joy in your salvation. Give us a liberty that we never knew possible. Oh Lord, give us give rest to our restless heart. Rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would press on to our hearts the wonders of a Savior who suffered divine wrath so that we shouldn't. Satisfy divine justice so that we may have boldness. And that is himself, God, so we know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. For he is faithful and just. Never shall let anyone snatch us out of his hand. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.